You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome to episode 248 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for this week. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at uh, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's it going, Nathan? I am doing all right. I'm actually recording from home again today because my daughter came up with strap this morning. So she's watching a Disney movie downstairs while I do a little podcasting. Also joining us, uh, David Grubbs, who is a uh, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. And the only one who's apparently in his office right now. That that depresses me. I, I don't know if I've told this story on the, uh, on the podcast yet, but I can't record from my office because they uh, put in a copy room right next door and you can hear everything that happens in the copy room. So I have to come home now and record. Yep. Show talk. So what's new in the network, guys? I'm trying to think when this episode's going to drop. This Thursday, the Sectarian Review is going to be uh, Dungeon Masters and Baptist Pastors, uh, <laughs> a sort of revisiting of Dungeons & Dragons Sectarian Review style. Uh, I was on that episode. It was a lot of fun. Uh, definitely listen to that one. That does At some fun. point, City of Man is going to start a series, an occasional series on country music. We've recorded the first two. Uh, Danny and I are both on that. That's cool. Who'd you record with? Coil. Oh, man, I was really hoping it was going to be Ed. Yeah, Ed Song doesn't seem like a fan of country music to me, but who knows? He contains multitudes. He does. I was really, I would have been really... I guess I could listen to Coyle, too. And you and Danny. Christian Feminist, either this week or next week, has a show on Legally Blonde. And then, of course, uh, by the time you're hearing this, the latest episode of Before They Were Live will have dropped. We're talking about Lady and the Tramp, and we have a guest from the Christian uh, Feminist podcast, Sarah Kluster, I think her name is now. Nay, Sarah Davis. Very cool. What's the movie again? Lady and the Tramp. Oh, yeah. Do y'all talk about the spaghetti thing? Well, yeah. And I talk about what it's like to actually watch dogs eat spaghetti, so enjoy that. (laughs) Not quite as dainty as the movie would have you believe. Well, our episode this week is part two of a three-part series, so if you haven't listened to the last episode, you're probably going to want to go back and listen to it. Today we're talking about chapters four through seven of James H. Cohn's The God of the Oppressed, so uh, we'll just jump right into it. Cohn opens chapter four with a brief summary and analysis of one of the most popular books of 20th century theology, Richard Niebuhr's Christ and Culture. I am certain all of our listeners are at least vaguely familiar with that book. In it, Niebuhr lays out five different approaches to culture that Christians might take. Niebuhr and Cohn both favor what Niebuhr calls conversionism. What is that, David? And where does Cohn critique Niebuhr even though they share conversionism? So Niebuhr, Niebuhr's Christ and culture uh, sets up five different uh, models, uh, as, as Cohn presents it, five different models for how you connect those two, those two elements, those two uh, radically different poles. Well, Christ and culture. How do you how do you assemble them? Uh, the first is what he calls radical Christians. Um, another term that he uses is the sectarian, and that is the one who sets Christ in a, a complete opposition to culture. 
I believe Niebuhr's example is Tertullian. Yeah, what is Athens to do with Jerusalem? Right. That that's that's the 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 radical sectarian Christian Christ versus culture perspective. Uh, and this uh, this he sort of leaves by the wayside. Um, not 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 really. And and you could see based you know go back and review uh, last week's episode, and you could see why the Christ versus culture um, perspective is not one that Cohen would find uh, very productive for the project he's interested in. Uh, also, the, the sort of opposite of that would be uh, something that he calls um, cultural, uh, the, the culturalist, the one who sees, and he quotes, uh, he quotes Niebuhr, Christ as a part of culture in the sense that he himself is part of the social heritage that must be transmitted and conserved. Um, and this uh, Christ as part of the culture perspective is is one also that Cone um, would not think is as productive at all uh, for the for the project that he's engaged in. Um, in fact, I I, I I I would guess that a number of the things that he critiques um, in, in what he calls white theology um, he he might actually put in this category. That seems reasonable. So there are three more interesting ways of of thinking about this. One that doesn't completely put them in complete ir irreconcilable opposition. Um, the other in which they just sort of blend in with each other. Um, these three uh, median views, what Cone calls them, are the synthesists, the dualists, and the conversionists. Um, the synthesists and he, he lists Thomas Aquinas as a synthesist, um, relate Christ and culture in a kind of hierarchical way. Um, and this is, this is Cohn's statement. Christ is far above culture, as contrasted to the culturalist model of Christ in culture. But at the same time, the synthesist sees Christ and culture built into a single harmonious system, in contrast with the sectarian image of Christ against culture. So... Christ, uh, Christ is greater than the culture, but they are in some ways on in some ways on the same continuum, as it were. Um, there is a uh, s some kind of unity between the good that's possible in culture and the good that is in Christ. The dualist Christianity uh, is, uh, and again, this is Cohn. Dualists affirm a paradoxical relationship of Christ and culture, so that uh, the 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 paradoxes of Christianity um, that, uh, like radical Christians, dualists view culture as godless and sick unto death. But unlike radicals, they believe that God calls Christians to obedience in culture, sustaining them in the context of the corruption. So that there's there's a, a, a paradoxical, seemingly contradictory element, but instead of rejecting the complementary elements, they say we hold them together. Um, and this, uh, Niebuhr, uh, and Cohn says that Niebuhr is impressed by their existential understanding of the divine-human relationship. Um, he does not like their tendency towards antinomianism and cultural conservatism, um, which, which makes a certain amount of sense if, uh, if these two are, are, are only, can only be held in a kind of unresolvable paradox. Um, the question, ought our culture to change, seems a, a very difficult project to get off the ground. So the fifth attitude, uh, the fifth version, uh, conversionist Christianity, defines Christ as the transformer of culture, and uh, so it is positive and hopeful towards culture. Um, the uh, the conversionist in particular is one who um, sort of takes seriously the goodness that is in creation, so that the gospel promises um, not... Uh, the exchange of a good world for an evil world, but the de but the redemption of a world that was created good, and that includes um, humans and human culture. So the the conversionist is also 
one who uh, is not just interested in kind of uh, theological concepts and how they inform um, our stances towards present realities, but seeing present reality as part of a narrative of God's work in history. Um, not just sort of hunker down until the eschaton, um, but instead uh, act in ways within within history. So it strikes uh, me, David, as a as a fairly Calvinist way of looking at things. I mean, not exclusively Calvinist, but it, I mean, it, it seems like there's a pretty broad swath of historic Calvinists who go along with that. Somebody like Abraham Kuyper, for example. Right, I, and and I. I I I, can, I I agree on that one. Um, the uh, the the tendency to um, to to not want to to be at the same time uh, necessarily completely um, theocratic, but also not completely withdrawn from the structures of of the culture. Um, is, is is something that's there though some of some some folk may find it ironic that i that i would say that a calvinist stance is not theocratic but you know calvin was in the operations of geneva um still underneath you know the the actual rulers of geneva he was not actually in charge <laughs> so yeah didn't keep him from burning people though right yeah eh, that guy would have got burned anywhere he went Maybe we can talk about that another day, though. Um, so Niebuhr's Niebuhr's conversionism is one that he's uh, that Cohn is is pretty uh, pretty sanguine about. the The problem, though, is that there's something in the definition both of Christ and of culture that he finds in in, in uh, insufficient in Niebuhr. Uh, first. Uh, and this is this is good review for for last uh, last week's episode, dear listeners. Uh, his definition of Christ necessarily includes, and not only includes but makes primary Christ's identity as the redeemer and rescuer of those who are oppressed from their oppressors. Um, the Christ as liberator is uh, not just part of Cohn's definition of who Christ is but is the central element to it. And so he says of, he says of Niebuhr that uh, Niebuhr is right in stressing the dialectical relations of love, hope, obedience, faith, and humility, as these virtues are particularized in Jesus' person, but he does not go far enough. Indeed, it can be said that what Niebuhr says about Christ is incorrect, not so much in terms of what he says, but in terms of what he fails to say. And because uh, Cone's, Cone's image, uh, Cone's uh, cr uh, view of Christ as liberator is so, so essential, um, the fact that Niebuhr doesn't make that central means Niebuhr's definition of Christ is, is insufficient. Um, uh, then, in terms of Niebuhr's definition of culture, um, he quotes him that, that culture includes the human activities of language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, and values. But what he does not include are those uh, relationships of power that um, that enable oppression and create the oppressed. Um, the particularity of human existence is important when one begins to speak of Christ's relationship to culture, or relation to culture, says Cohn, and then for Christ's relation to culture is not defined in cultural generalities, but in terms of the concreteness of human pain and suffering. Um, the presence of oppression in a culture of oppressors and the oppressed um, is the absolute starting point for Cohn, and the fact that Niebuhr has not made that aspect of culture central to its definition means that the, both the Christ that he's bringing into relationship to this culture and the culture itself, he, he thinks are both insufficiently um, centered in their definition on the things that Cohn sees as so utterly essential that to to not leave not just leave them out but to make them less than central 
is to uh, compromise the whole definition. So what what could I what what could augment this discussion? Well, to go back to last week's conversation, David, I think that what you're seeing in his critique of of Niebuhr, I mean, we can bring back to those biblical priorities we were kind of touching on, right? Uh, for Cohn, the real story of faith begins when God hears and remembers and moves in favor of uh, the Hebrews in Exodus. Uh, I think his critique of Niebuhr is that, you know, Niebuhr treats Genesis not as a, a you know, a, a prequel of sorts that you put in there so you can understand Exodus, but treats it as more primary, right? where there is a sort of cosmic order first, and then you get to the particulars. For Cone, you dive right into the particulars, and then, you know, if you have some time to spare later, you pick up the big cosmic picture. Right, and that was something that, well, it, at least I'm not entirely satisfied yet uh, with. I, I know that I understand the reasons for jumping straight in with Exodus and giving Exodus priority, but... Um, given that that's a move that's based on a reconstruction of the history of a text and not the text presentation of itself so to speak um that 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 that's a move that i think needs a little more defense than it gets in this book that's fair enough the rest of chapter four hinges on a word common among marxism influenced philosophies and theologies the word is ideology what does Cohn mean when he calls something ideology instead of theology? And what do you think of that distinction, Nathan? Well, first of all, you know, in uh, Marxist discourse more broadly, um, ideology, and I'm probably going to say ideology just because that's how I learned how to say it, uh, refers to the generation of ideas and concepts and uh, philosophies and so on and so forth, as opposed to the production of material things, the industrial and the agricultural and so on and so forth. For Marx, uh, ideology, the way that he renders history, uh, comes along so that a form of society uh, can live at peace with itself. Uh, and so, you know, he points to a feudal ideology as a sort of theology of hierarchy. You know, God wants there to be kings and he wants the peasants to, you know, uh, pay the proper honor to the king, and he wants the king to act in ways that are for the good of the kingdom, and so on and so forth. Then when you shift into a more capitalist uh, economic arrangement, uh, the ideology becomes something resembling liberalism, where there are universal rights, uh, and where there are democratic elections, and so on and so forth. And again, the function of the ideology is to help people live at peace with the contradictions inherent in the system. Uh, so within capitalism, there is a great increase of wealth because capitalism has a great power to increase the production of wealth. Uh, and yet the wealth, or the labor, I should say, uh, of those who actually produce the wealth uh, is exploited so that the, those who control the means of production actually end up with the wealth. Well, Cohn picks up that notion uh, that, you know, it's, a, it's a, an idea structure that justifies, and he calls it a deformed thought, first of all, and he describes it as a reasoning that has a partisan interest at heart rather than a universal interest at heart. Uh, and so, for him, you know, what keeps a, a theology from becoming ideology uh, is that it has a starting point with the oppressed, first of all, uh, that it has an end goal as the liberation of the oppressed, uh, and that it is constantly re-examining itself uh, so that it doesn't become a justification for oppression in the wake of a revolution. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things that he uh, insists on in here uh, is that listening to others, including listening to the tradition, is one mode of keeping theology from becoming ideology. He also distinguishes between particular and total ideology. He says that a, even a liberation-centered uh, theology can become ideological in a certain part, again, when it loses sight of the fact that it is acting in 
partisan interest rather than in the general interest. But then he also says that there are certain kinds of theology, and we discussed this uh, last week, uh, that become generally ideological. Uh, and the reason for that is that, you know, they begin with priorities and concerns and drives that are inherently alien to uh, the revelation of God in its own terms uh, and instead impose, you know, something like an imperial ideology uh, or a bourgeois ideology or something like that on the text, pulling the parts of the text that support uh, imperialism or capitalism or whatever else and pretending that those things are, in fact, the core of what's going on. To oppose ideology, in other words, is to deal with the forecone central facts of the revelation of God, namely that God has, in fact, chosen the oppressed, uh, whether we're talking about the Hebrews, whether we're talking about the Palestinian Jews over against the Romans, whether we're talking about the poor over the wealthy, so on and so forth, a theology that returns to God's preference uh, for the oppressed over the oppressor avoids that danger of ideology. So, you know, on, on one hand, you know, on a structural level, I'll put it that way, uh, that makes a fair bit of sense to me. What I didn't, don't get a real strong sense of, and, you know, this is, uh, I don't know if it's, it's related to uh, David's reticence with this text, but my reticence is that there's not a whole lot of concrete spiritual or intellectual or, you know, worship practices, so to speak, uh, that pull it away from that, you know, uh, because everything is rooted in the historically particular, which we're going to be talking about in a little while. Uh, it's hard to imagine what this kind of theology would do in response to, you know, an increase in the sta standing and the, you know, power in the world of people who are already part of that historically particular group. Does that make some sense, or am I talking around this? Makes sense to me. It, he, he seems, and, and this is, I'm really interested to see how, whether, how this develops further, because I haven't finished reading the book. Um, maybe, maybe that's a, maybe that's a problem. Maybe I shouldn't talk until I finish reading the book, but so dear listeners, you're getting my in-process thoughts, but I would, I, it's, it's really interesting because he, he seems to define blackness itself through the experience of, of, of oppression. Um, and so that so that he he will almost use those those terms interchangeably, and he wants to talk about the particularity of of a uh, a particular community's experience. But like uh, like you said, Nathan, what happens what happens if things shift, right? What happens if um, you know what happens if uh, Scottish peasants who were living, you know, a, basically a subsistence lifestyle in the Hebrides get evicted because of enclosure during the late 18th century and wearing nothing but rags immigrate over to the United States, settle in the Appalachians, and a few generations later, um, their descendants are high on the hog or not. Right, or to shift to a more biblical example, um, what if you get a band of liberated slaves who a few generations later become a Solomonic Empire? Yes. <laughs> yes, exa exactly. Like, well, well I, w I will say this. In, in the Western world in the last 200, 300 years at least, oppressed people groups have tended to be seen as non-white. So rather infamously... The Irish were not considered white in the early 20th century. The Italians weren't considered white in the middle of the 20th century. So in some ways, I think he's right to use black as a stand-in for the oppressed, provided he doesn't universalize it too much. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like it's a fair universalization. Mm -hmm. It's a fair universalization right now, um, even though it wouldn't have been a fair universalization when you were talking about ancient Hebrews or as uh, as as David notes, uh, Scots immigrants. Right, right, and I guess you could always write another book too. 
<laughs> well, it, I, I'm just interested. I'm interested to see what happens to the arguments for the for the rootedness and particularity when when the when the particularity of the community shifts. Does does all does that identity as the oppressed who are God's people for whom He advocates? Does that then transition over to another group of people who are oppressed for a different reason, and now their particularity is what matters? Well, I mean, to, to pull on uh, Tony Campolo, one of those guys who wouldn't have been white at some point, uh, you know, he famously uh, started up a ministry where, you know, he helped urban communities start, you know, small businesses, you know, in places where the large corporations had abandoned the community and uh you know someone from the acton institute listeners if you don't know the acton institute they're a a very pro-capitalist uh theological think tank uh someone posed a question to him in an exchange you know well tony what if one of these companies that starts in you know the south side of chicago gets to be as big as walmart and tony campello said well then i'll oppose them <laughs> Alrighty then. Seems fair. Uh, in chapter five, Cohn talks about the way African Americans and other oppressed groups see Jesus and his relationship to the Bible. It reminded me a little bit of uh, discussions that you and Nathan have had on this podcast over the years, David. So I would like to ask you to respond to what he says here in chapter five and see if Cohn can bring the two of you a little bit closer together. <clears throat> What exactly is the relationship between Jesus, the congregation, and the New Testament? Well, one of the things that I found uh, really interesting about uh, about his treatment of the role of Jesus in in Black theology is the way that he treats uh, the the worshiping community of Black Christians as represented in uh, in their church worship uh, as as readers of uh, readers of the New Testament's witness to Jesus. So uh, he will uh, very frequently have song lyrics that will be quoted um, that are bearing witness to who Jesus is and what how we should respond to him, um, what you know what Jesus' role is in the life of the one who is um, in the in the voice of the song, right? So it's not that this, uh, it's not that this Jesus is wholly subjective, all right? Because they are still treating um, the gospel narratives as, as the uh, sort of the, the source material. They are they are reading they are reading the Jesus of the gospel. Um, but it is um, it is the way that they moving from the Jesus of the Gospels uh, construct a, a a relationship to him. Um, it's the ways that they construct a uh, not when I say imagined, I mean um, not that it's imaginary, right? But but it's it's a. Um, uh, a, a relationship that is not confirmed by you know constant physical space you know connections between you know physical people but uh you know the the relationship that they have um in in the ways that they speak of jesus um that is uh, i think incredibly interesting it reminds me of a book that i read a long time ago not a long time ago a few years ago did a profiles interview with um, an English theologian named Chris Tilling, he t who who talks about uh, the Christ relation in um, especially Paul's epistles, and the ways that Paul talks about how we relate to the risen, ascended Christ, that the ways that he that that we continue to be in relationship to him, um, and Cone's use of worship. Um, especially the worship in song, as a as a as a theology source, reminded me of that, and all of the different ways that um, our song 
prepare uh, our, the, within the within the the culture of the black church all the w different ways that that their worship prepares them to think of and relate to Christ to them um, practically and ordinarily um, as a way of bridging the gap between um, the sort of the application to their immediate context and uh, the reading of the New Testament text itself. I thought that was a I thought that was a really cool move to show how um, the the emphasis on uh, liberation and freedom within the immediate context, uh, especially of, uh, of black Christians who were slaves or in the genera the generations shortly after emancipation, um, the 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 focus. Uh, on how they how they applied um, how they saw Christ as relating to them them in their in the particularity of their situation um, I, I, I just appreciated his use of, of the song as kind of the middle term in that in that application um, and I, I appreciated the uh, really the dignity that he gave to those songs not just as kind of cultural or artistic expressions but as actual theology doing yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the, the strongest and most interesting parts of this book, in fact. Yeah. And that's 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 all I really have to say um, about that, except that I, I appreciated um, I appreciated his attention to the difference that worship makes um, in in bridging the gap between our theology and our application. Um, that is something that I think could be given more attention to in other communities as well and i think it's it strengthens his case for how the particular some of the some of the the particular particularities of his formulation of black theology um i think make a stronger kind of sense when you see them growing up out of a community that worships like this well and one thing that's interesting is the people who talk about worship forming a bridge between, I forget how you just put it, theology and practice. They tend to be the sort who think of worship in a rather intellectualized way. And one thing that's interesting about his treatment is that the worship he presents from the black church is not intellectualized. It's very personalized. It's very experiential. So he's 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 suggesting that it bridge that gap, but it do so in a different way than, say, James K.A. Smith. Right, right. It needn't be a high churchy liturgy for worship to be soul formative and also as both of you have noted i mean it is uh individualistic in a way that you know if i didn't know this was a black theologian writing from union seminary i'd be tempted to call it an evangelical piety uh which makes a fair bit of sense in this context because uh these are people whose history has told them over and over and over again, you are property, you are a menace, you are something other than uh, on the level with the white citizens of this continent you dwell on. And so it becomes, you know, supremely important in Cone's theology uh, that, you know, in this, what to me looks like, you know, very individualistic piety, uh, there is an affirmation for every human being who is present at the, you know, worship event uh, that, you know, you individually are affirmed as supremely important. And, you know, that is a, a counterforce, I think, to so many of the demonic forces of the culture that, you know, people in that context are confronting. Well, and the... Um... And he mentions this periodically, the ways that uh, that the the Christianity of the white culture in which the slaves are owned, the, 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 the Christianity of the owners, um, how that comes to them and what those purposes are. But for the for a pretty significant uh, chunk, um, it's it is a a Methodist or a Baptistic, not exclusively. I mean, the South is not exclusively. They aren't all Baptists. They aren't all Methodists. They aren't all Presbyterians. But there is a strong Methodist DNA 
in um, in evangelism to slaves in the South and a strong Baptistic um, bit of DNA. And both of those um, both of those traditions within uh, the Christianity of the you know largely largely English um, set, uh, settlers. The, those the elements that you're identifying as evangelical piety, Nathan. I mean, the, those those elements are there in Methodism. They are there in the Baptist tradition, and so those those tools are there for um, these evangelized, not free African slaves to pick up that tool and recognize the way in which an, evangel an evangelical piety presumes on the individual dignity of the one who practices it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, yeah, and, and you're, you're right, David, to note those historical antecedents to evangelicalism. I was talking about it like it sprang full-fledged from the head of Billy Graham. <laughs> right, right. But, I mean, my, my point being, regardless of what the intentions um, might have been had with those who were evangelizing um, these, these, uh, these, this first generation of Christian African slaves, um, whatever their intentions might have been, um, whether whether for good or for ill, to you know, kind of give them religion so they'll be peaceful, wh whatever those intentions were, the the Christianity with which they were evangelized contained within it tools for them to think outside of their status, in ways that I think are part of. Um, Cone's idea of liberty. While we're talking about Jesus, he also wades into the Jesus of faith and Jesus of history debates of the 20th century. I think he sides pretty decisively on the Jesus of history side, but he uses that term differently than most evangelicals do, and for that matter, differently than the Jesus seminar does. So how do we build our faith on the historical Jesus, and what does that have to do with his resurrection, Nathan? Yeah, this is another place where I saw a lot of affinity for, uh, you know, what I would call an evangelical piety, and what David rightly notes grows out of a Methodist-Baptist piety, in that the Jesus of history is supremely important, uh, but the Jesus of history is supremely important for the sake of analogy. Uh, so in other words, you know, you don't get... Uh, what sometimes you hear from, you know, the the college sophomore who's just taken the intro to religion class, well, that didn't actually happen, that didn't actually happen, that didn't actually happen. Uh, but instead, you get a strong emphasis on the Jewishness of Jesus, and the important part of the Jewishness for Cohn is the particular historical situation of Judaisms uh, in their various forms there in the first century when Jesus is walking about. So you have internal division among the various sects of Judaism. You have a, a varied relationship with the Roman Empire. There is no single Jewish relationship to the empire. Uh, you have uh, relationships with the intellectual life of the Eastern Mediterranean. And I mean, one of the, one of the things that made me grit my teeth as I was uh, rereading this, prepping for the show, is that he uses that pernicious phrase, quote, the Greek view. Yeah, I noticed quote, that. that. That always makes me want to throw things. Um, but I will say that, you know, uh, he is working from, you know, this, this strong 19th, 20th century uh, scholarly interest in the historical Jesus. Um, and one of his critiques of uh, Karl Barth, we've talked about the Barthian influence, is that the way that Cohn reads it, Bart plays down the historical and Jewish particularity of Jesus in favor of the the utter otherness of God. And he says that uh, by playing that up so high that it diminishes the commonality that the oppressed Jew Jesus has with the oppressed black Christian in America, uh, it takes away uh, one of the points of connection that is genuinely life-giving for those communities. So it's certainly, you know, a, a favoring of the Jesus of faith, or of history, pardon me, uh, but it is a Jesus of history for the sake of the Jesus of liberationist politics, 
uh, and therefore it becomes a, a variation, I think, on the Jesus of history, or of faith, I, I'm flipping them all over the place, because the historical Jesus in the political arrangements that the historical Jesus exists becomes analogous to the oppressed faithful 20 centuries later. Does that, does that relationship between those elements make sense, Michael? It does to me. What, what about the resurrection? How important is that to Cone? Ah, he names it as one of the events in the life of Jesus. I mean, he says that, you know, uh, we're interested not in, a, you know, an abstract second person of the Trinity who exists in perichoretic this or that, but in the Jesus who was born and walked in Palestine and taught and died and was resurrected. So uh, for him, the creedal formulation uh, is part of that historical Jesus picture in a way that it's decidedly not uh, for, you know, certain New Testament scholars. I'll just leave that just that vague. Which which is why, I, I mean, I think it's helpful to see him as, in many ways, more orthodox than a lot of people were more accustomed to, and, and to keep that in mind when he feels radical to us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a, a political radical who is informed by historical theology. Yeah, I when I when I read this book I am struck both by how uncomfortable I'm made by his politics, which is not a bad thing, and um and by how bound to the tradition he really is because I expected him to just go in and say let's toss it, it's racist, it, it you know, it it excludes. And instead he's saying, you know, we need to hew relatively closely to the tradition, but we also need to recognize the blind spots of the tradition heretofore. Right. And then, you know, what's interesting about that is that uh, he does on occasion, as you noted, you know, say, now this doesn't mean that I'm a fundamentalist, understand me. But, <laughs> uh, he does use the resurrection, you know, as one of the data uh, that are important for the way that, you know, Jesus continues to inform the political struggle that, you know, is at the core of Christian theology for Cone. Well, and importantly, black theology for Cone, right? Because uh, one of the uh, part of part of his uh, orthodoxy on matters like um, the reality of the resurrection um, is is I think uh, part part of the reason I, I think why he emphasizes it so strongly is because historically. Um, black Christianity ha has not gone the way of mainline white Christianity in terms of em sort of embracing the skepticism and so forth of uh, of modernist um, theology. You know that that they you know the black church didn't go that way, and uh, can't, and so Cone doesn't either. Um, I think he's I think he's faithful in the way that his community has been. Also, I think for him, the resurrection is a liberatory political event, as well as being a right. theological and historical event. The, the resurrection is, in some ways, the ultimate liberation from oppression. Oh, sure. If they can't kill you, they can't keep you down. Well, yeah, exactly. It's a political it's a political event because it's a historical and theological event. Were it not were it not those other two, you couldn't use it for the third. Or perhaps you could say that among men we should most be pitied. Exactly. Did you guys catch his Athanasius move? Go go ahead, David. You're our, you're a patristics guy. I did catch it, but uh I want you to uh <laughs> reel it in. Right, right, right. So, okay, in, in spite of the fact that he's, you know, bagging on Nicaea a few pages before, I'll forgive him. Um, he t he says, uh, page 122 in the version, in the, the edition I'm looking at, um, without the certainty that Christ is with us as that historical Jesus was present with the humiliated and weak in Palestine, how can black people account for the power and courage to struggle against slave masters and overseers in the 20th century and the Ku Klux Klan and policemen in the 20th? What is it that keeps the community together when there are so many scares and hurts? What is it that gives them the will and courage to struggle in hope when so much in their environment says that fighting is a waste of time? I think that the only reasonable and objective explanation is to say that 
The people are right when they proclaim the, the presence of a divine power wholly different from themselves, which is almost exactly like Athanasius's argument in On the Incarnation of the Word, in which he says, do, do you know how I know that the resurrection is real and that Christ is Lord? Look at the willingness of Christians to embrace martyrdom. And uh, th that uh, look look at the uh, look at the way in which the living Christ lives his lives his resurrection power through the ability of his community to undertake hardship um, bravely and cheerfully. Um, that that is that is an, an, an evidence um, of his continued power in the present. Uh, anyway, I, 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 when I read that bit, I said, Hey, that's Athanasius. <laughs> I wish he'd cited him there because that's the same, that's the same argument. Athanasius was Ethiopian. I'll point out. Uh, chapter seven, we've already talked about this a little bit, but, um, chapter seven has a discussion of black worship and prayer, which I found to be very interesting. Uh, how does what Cone has to say about these practices align with your own experiences in the white churches you've attended, David? Well, I've tended to, you know, go to church in fairly buttoned-down white churches. So um, not everything that he describes here um, is is familiar to me. Um, in particular, uh, his his description of the uh, I, I thought this was funny um, on page 123 at the Macedonia AME church sister Ora Wallace would line a familiar hymn investing a depth of passion and meaning far greater than Isaac Watts ever intended O God our help in ages past our hope for years to come our shelter from the stormy blast and or our eternal home and when I read those lines what I hear is an organ and a very uh, sort of uh, metrically regular um, uh, congregation singing along with it the the proper harmonies within the hymn book. But apparently that is not what James Cone hears in his head at this point. Um, and I I remember as a child being particularly. Uh, wigged out by people singing special music um, yeah i always hated special music singing to some sort of vocal track yeah yeah the uh singing his eyes on the sparrow right but the one of the things that bothered me is the way in which um it, it always felt to me like showing off and you know i i, I that's completely unfair i recognize that especially now as how utterly unfair that was but um for me singing in church was this thing that everyone did in unison and the individual doing their own thing with the song always struck me as uh as 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 showy and and, and not appropriate um but the the assertion of the individual's liberty in song is actually an important thing for Cone. It's not just that the lyrics are exploring um, the identity that the singer finds in Christ, but even the ways of singing are, are dramatizing that, uh, that relation um, that, the, that the lyrics describe. Uh, one of the things that he that he gets into in particular is the emphasis uh, in uh, the the black church community that he describes is songs that focus on heaven and uh, the uh, the you know the the future restoration the future vindication uh, of of the oppressed by the judge of the universe. And those are, you know, one one could uh, one could argue, and it has sometimes been argued that that the the emphasis on heaven is kind of a pie in the sky by and by that you know just 
it's part of the opium of the masses that keeps the people placid so that they don't do anything. You know, right, well, that's, a, that's a constant refrain in the autobiography of Malcolm X. Right, exactly. And, and, and I, I think Cohn is, is taking, that, taking that on directly. Um, but he says, the visions of Christ's future that break into their slave existence, um, here he's talking specifically about um, the, the spirituals that talk about uh, heaven. Um, the way that Christ's future breaks into their slave existence radically changes their perspective on life, and to others who stand outside the community where the vision is celebrated, black people's talk about long white robes and golden slippers in heaven seems a proof that black religion is an opium of the people. But in reality, it is a radical judgment which black people are making upon the society that enslaved them. Uh, black religion, therefore, becomes a revolutionary alternative to white religion. Jesus Christ becomes the one who stands at the center of their view of reality, enabling slaves to look beyond the present to the future, the time when black suffering will be ended. The future reality of Jesus means that what is contradicts what ought to be. And so that, that emphasis on heaven, not, not as a, uh, and the emphasis on heaven and worship, not as a way to say what happens to me now is unimportant, unimportant because later things will be good, but instead as a way to consistently emphasize and worship um, the way things are now is not the way they ought to be. Um, that, which, can... which connects him back to conversionism, right? Because, I mean, that's essentially what conversionism says. It's, it's about uh, essentially making the kingdom of God on earth imperfectly. Right. Right, and that and that begins with the recognition that things are not as they ought to be, um, and then moving and then taking that as a trajectory for action, not as a an excuse for resignation. So uh, that that I found interesting as well. That um, you know what what does the worship look like from the outside? It might look like resignation and a kind of consolation in in you know, set off in the hereafter, but in fact, um, it's it's it is like in 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 a lot of ways like um, like Isaiah in what is it chapter three chapter four where um, I think it's I think it's uh, yeah around in there where he's talking about in that day like this this last day you know God's ultimate judgment. But then he transitions right into the present day. And that is why you now, you know, person who is a champion at drinking games and oppressing the poor, um, God is coming for you. So that, that sort of es the, the worship centered on, on, on the eschaton isn't, uh, doesn't exclude critique of the present. Um, it is it is actually the, the the canon rule by which we make those claims about the present. Anything to add to that, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, I think David's I'm I, hitting it right on the head, and you know, again, this is where my own uh, seminary education and you know, really my reading in the 16 years now since seminary, I mean, have pointed. I, you know, I hadn't read a whole lot of the original text, so to speak, of liberation theology, but I get them sort of filtered through Walter Brueggemann, uh, for whom, just as David just now said, uh, you know, the the promises of an eschatological age to come uh, are important, yes, because they offer comfort to those who die for the sake of righteousness, as in, you know, Daniel 12, uh, but also because they give us a vision for evaluating right uh what the difference is between good change and bad change right uh so in a weird way the more apocalyptic theology gets the more platonic it gets because you have a a standard or a measure or a canon as david said uh that by definition lies in the conceptual realm because it's not realized in the world that we inhabit in a material sense but nonetheless gives shape to our material reality in that we now have the capacity to strive towards it. 
when Zion uh, turns out to uh, when Zion is is treated as a republic. Yeah, precisely, or a city on a hill, if you will. <laughs> exactly. As we might expect, uh, a lot of his analysis hinges on the notion of liberation. He's so closely associated with liberation theology. But freedom is one of those terms with a thousand different meanings. So, Nathan, when Cohn talks about Christian liberation, what is he talking about? He's talking about many things. So I'm going to try to give the, uh, the broad outlines here, and I'll rely on you guys to fill in the bits that I'm underemphasizing. So freedom or liberation for Cohn is always a project, not an object. Uh, so again, he has that, um, what I would call a deconstructionist unease with, you know, very static utopian visions. Uh, part of what it means to become liberated is the increased capacity to imagine liberation. Liberation is also always rooted in divine freedom, uh, which is a move that, you know, I would call you know, mosaic, uh, but probably in the 20th century I should call Bardian, because uh, that's the custom. <laughs> um, but the idea that uh, God will be who God will be is always at the core of it. Uh, and he insists that, you know, this is a notion of freedom and a project of freedom. I shouldn't say notion, because that, that tends back towards stasis. Uh, but it's a project of freedom that in this age must be the consciousness of freedom uh, because the material reality that we inhabit will always be some kind of mix between the wheat and the tares, which is to say oppression and liberation. It always must be historical. We can't merely relegate it to a realm that lies beyond time, but it can never be limited to history. In other words, if we say that uh, we could imagine a moment where we have accomplished freedom uh, and, you know, therefore we don't have any more work to do. We have misunderstood freedom fundamentally. And, the you know, what runs through all of this uh, is something that he says early in this chapter on uh, liberation, which is, quote, fellowship with God is the beginning and end of human liberation, close quote. So once again, you know, our, our conversation last time uh, for Cohn's project, uh, liberation, yes, must always be political, and it must always be political for those Abraham Kuyper reasons that Michael was alluding to earlier, right? Uh, the political is one of those, you know, square inches of reality at which, at which God points and says, mine. Um, now, I don't know what James Cohn would think of my putting him in league with Abraham Kuyper, but, <laughs> you know, here I am. Uh, listeners, you can, uh, you know, be the defenders of Kuiper or the defenders of Cone when you write in angrily at us. Um, so, you know, what's interesting for me uh, is that I read all of this, and what I see in Cone is an updated notion of divine justice that has a very Augustinian flavor to it. Whatever liberation is, it has to extend to the existential, it has to extend to the uh, eschatological, it has to extend to the political, it has to extend to the familial, it has to extend to every possible facet of reality precisely because God is God, and it has to look like Jesus, the, the uh, liberator of the oppressed, uh, because Jesus is God. Uh, and, you know, for all of those reasons, you know, this chapter uh, where, and, you know, again, you guys can uh, correct me if I'm if I'm overplaying this, but where parts of earlier chapters seem to be very narrowly focused on the places where Cone thinks that we are neglecting liberation, in this one I feel like he zooms out and says these parts that I've been spending the first three chapters on are in fact part of this cosmic vision, right? Um, and you know I'll, I'll I'll make my last dumb preacher joke here and then I'll turn it over to you guys, you know. Really, this chapter for me is Cone saying, among other things, uh, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his justice, and all this other stuff will get added unto you. Yeah. The, the further I get into this book, the more I think that he just, he would not say there's any kind of distinction between the political and the theological, which is not the same thing as saying that theology has to be political. It's It's saying, essentially, that there are two names for the same thing, and... They're a much wholer cloth 
than perhaps white theologians are accustomed to thinking they are. Theologians who are not oppressed. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, theology is always more than political, but it can never be less than political. That's a nice way to put it. Well, uh, on the way out, as I read through these chapters, in my mind I began to position Cohn in a line of intellectuals running from Reinhold Niebuhr through Cornell West and Barack Obama, which I guess is a way of saying that I read Cohn as a Christian pragmatist. David, do you think that's a helpful way of thinking of him? I think that I think that sounds right. Uh, you you talked last week uh, uh, about him being Luther Lutherish, if I remember right. Um, that was me. <laughs> okay, Nathan. Anyway, and and I'll I'll just repeat what I said. I didn't say that he's identical. I said he makes me uneasy in the way that Luther makes me uneasy. Right. I believe right. I called both of them practical radicals, which may be what you're thinking of. That they're they both they both have a radicalism that's built on concern for lived human experience and the oppressed. Right. Right. And and I think also that that direction was was uh, that that question was directed at you, Michael. If I remember rightly, um, it was yeah, yeah. But, but Nathan, Nathan brought it up, and I tried to answer it. Yes. So, to clear this up for yourself, dear listener, go listen. The, uh, his instinct to make a summa, a practical thing, um, I, I think is 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 something that that makes this label make sense. Um, that he. Uh, that he makes such a central matter of concern that um, not just to omit it, but to set it off center or to set it in the periphery of Christianity as, as sort of one of the entailments of the gospel um, to make, uh, to do that for him is, is heretical. Um, And so, and so pragmatists, not just in the sense that, you know, pra- pragmatists are often seen as uh, that, that term will often be used uh, to mean someone who's who's not as um, fiery, shall we say, in their pursuit of a goal, right? Someone who's a who compromiser. Should, yeah, someone who understands the 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 down to earth realities, and you got to kind of get in the trenches and 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 you know, kind of do what you can with what you got all right he's not a pragmatist in that sense i wouldn't say um but he is a pragmatist in the sense that what he's concerned with is is praxis uh what he regards as orthopraxis and he will he will declare something uh, as heresy that is not um not just failing to act on practically in the ways that he sees as appropriate but even um even making optional or or secondary those those forms of practice um in some ways uh i this is an analogy so you know i guess maybe someone's going to get mad at me anyway whatever um in some ways his emphasis uh making making that matter of practice of practical interest so central um reminds me of the way uh, Catholics uh, talk about the Eucharist in comparison to Protestants as making that practical liturgical act so utterly central um, to their even their self-conception of themselves as uh, as uh, as Christians that uh, you know I, I go to a church where we you know we have communion like once a quarter you know um it's not the 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 piety of 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 the discipline of the table or of the the sacrament of the table is not you know it's is not the the most frequent thing for me um but for a catholic it's so utterly central um in in the the catholic writers that that i've read the thinkers that i've engaged with it's so utterly central to them that to think that you could that you could do the way it's done in my church is uh, 
un it would be unsettling, would be offensive. Anyway, I, I, I feel like James Cone's uh, practical concerns for liberation and oppression are kind of he feels he feels about them that way and he's also a pragmatist in that he is suspicious of the deployment of ideals in order to suppress political enemies uh yeah and he, he, he gets into this more uh even more i should say uh in the final chapters of the book that we'll talk about with david next week uh, but he has very little patience for people who uh, hold the oppressed people to very absolute standards of, you know, behavioral limits uh, when, you know, the world as they encounter it doesn't really allow them to embrace those kinds of behavioral limits without self-destructing. Uh, and so, you know, I, I definitely see Reinhold Niebuhr in that, right? I mean, you know, Niebuhr famously... Uh, decried the pacifists of the, you know, early and mid 20th century because they were not taking the world as it confronts us seriously enough. And, you know, certainly that thread uh, runs straight, straight through, pardon me, to Barack Obama. And yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely uh, locate uh, James Cone's project of uh, liberation as the central project, you know, within that same tradition, you know, liberation uh, isn't something that is uh, timeless. Uh, it is something that starts somewhere and is on the way somewhere and is going somewhere. And I think that you know, in the in in so far as he wants to pay very very close attention to the particularity of that journey, it definitely makes him a a pragmatist. So, uh, Michael, what other features of of Cone point to that pragmatism for you? I, I think you guys pr pretty much covered it. Um, I, I do have to say that I if Cornell West overhears this, he's probably not going to be happy being put next to Barack Obama like that. Yeah, but he'll <laughs> still call us his brothers, and that's awesome. All right, he'd probably laugh about it. Uh, so that's it for uh, chapters four through seven of uh, God of the Oppressed. Next week, we'll be back to finish the book. David will be leading it. In the meantime, if you have any questions or thoughts you can email them to us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com our website is christianhumanist.org christian humanist podcasts production of the christian humanist radio network press liaison is Kristen philippic our intern is ellen peterson until next week this is michael farmer for nathan gilmore and david grubb saying let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger